Welcome to the Transportation Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Elmer Guardado. Gareth Dennis, engineer and writer, joins us today to talk about the growth of active travel and what that means, how public transit is evolving, and how the UK compares to the US in terms of transit and carpooling. How you doing, Gareth? Uh, hello, I'm very well. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. So, uh, Gareth, just to like get everyone on the same page, let's talk a little bit about what you do exactly in this industry. And we can go ahead and talk about permanent rail engineering or, or however you want to describe yourself, right? Because you did mention that you, you're, you're kind of working at, at different companies at the moment, right? Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm sort of an engineer and writer. So my, my background is in um, railway engineering. Uh, so um, uh, so I'm, I'm, my technical title is I'm a senior permanent way design engineer, but that's kind of a mouthful. So I normally just say railway engineer. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in the, 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 the track itself and the wider railway system. So that involves kind of understanding not just the sort of um, civil engineering and mechanical engineering side, but also some of the transportation science stuff and about a bit about how people travel and and kind of so I, I work my way right the way through from sort of feasibility studies into transport right the way up to sort of detailed design and designing sort of um you know new railways or modifying existing railways um, so so i get the full sort of spectrum of stuff um and i also write for a few um a few kind of uh, publications in the the rail industry here in the uk uh, yeah so I, I keep myself i certainly keep myself busy and uh, permanent rail engineering yeah sorry so permanent rail engineering is um is kind of my own company and uh, it does a mixture of sort of um, it does some design, it does a bit of management stuff. But at the moment, I'm focused a lot on transport strategy. So um, we do uh, we respond to public consultations about new transport ideas, um, mostly in the UK. And uh, also we do a bit of stuff about outreach. So kind of different ideas about transport, try and convey them in a new or interesting way for people to digest. So sometimes we do. Um, we, we've got a series of infographics talking about the capacity of different sorts of transport modes, which sometimes can be quite surprising for people. So, I mean, it seems like you're in an interesting niche, right, where you do have to understand multiple angles of, of the situation, right? Like not just the, like you said, the engineering side, but the the social side of, of how do people and why do people transport the way they do. So what are what are some of the difficulties that come with, you know, trying to get these concepts from different, you know, sides of, of different industries across? Yeah, so um, I mean, I can go with two angles for this. One of them is is sort of the, the understanding why people take certain transport modes, and that can be quite difficult to understand. And actually, collecting data about how many people actually take certain transport modes can be difficult in itself. So, actually, collecting survey data to understand who travels on what transport mode can be quite tricky. But uh, with the advent of kind of more data, more big data, and and more um, open licenses for data, that becomes a little bit easier. People using their phones, for example, is a really useful um, useful way to get that information. So uh, people have their Wi-Fi switched on their phone uh, normally, and Transport for London, which is the kind of um, the group that run transportation in London, so you know the underground and some of the other trains, uh, they actually had a trial for a while collecting data from people's Wi-Fi on their phones and tracing them through the transport network and out the other side, and it was all all anonymous, but it get, started giving these heat maps of kind of the flow of people through through cities. So so the, the kind of that that side of things can be can be quite tricky getting that information. Um, and then understanding how it's relevant. The other side is when I'm doing uh, more detailed design is actually, for example, at platforms, at, at railway station platforms, um, you have this sort of conundrum of uh, the trains need to be as far away from the platform as possible so they don't hit the platform, obviously, as they go past. At the same time, 
so that people can easily get on and off the train, you want the train to be as close to the platform as possible. So there's this sort of strange dichotomy of, of, of keeping the trains as far away and close as possible. And the way that people interact with trains, so the ergonomics, the, the way that people kind of cluster around and uh, in, on station platforms, understanding that, and that's kind of quite, quite a social side of things, is really important to manage the safety uh, at that interface because it's actually quite a dangerous uh, place to be at the edge of a platform. So, uh, yeah, there, those are two sides of kind of, as, as, a, as, a, as a civil and a mechanical engineer, you wouldn't necessarily expect to be involved in, in the social and ergonomic side of things and the behavioral side of things quite as much. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And I think that that uh, platform example is perfect, right? Because it points out that dichotomy and it's it's kind of interesting, right? That there aren't many other fields that would really expect you to to think about both sides of that so that's super interesting so with permanent rail engineering and and the consulting you're doing what uh what kind of companies or 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 clients do you find yourself working with so the majority of the time i spend myself working for uh, network rail who are the uh they're kind of the custodians they're the infrastructure manager for the mainline railways in the united kingdom so um Almost all the railways in the UK are owned by Network Rail, which is sort of, it's a company, but it's also sort of a government body. Um, so that the, the track itself is owned by, really is owned by the government. Um, and so most of the projects we do are for this company, Network Rail. And, and there's a few strange stats about Network Rail. So they, they happen to be the biggest builder of bridges in the world. There are so many bridges on the rail network in the UK. You know, it's the oldest railway network in the world. So there are lots of bridges and so many of these have to get renewed because some of them are, you know, reaching 200 years old every now and then they have to get renewed. So if you imagine that's happening across a network of, you know, 7,000 kilometers or more, um, that's a lot of bridges that get renewed a year, which is why they're, they have this role as kind of one of the biggest, the biggest bridge builder in, in the world, which is quite a cool fact. Um, but they do, so there's a huge amount of work to, to be done for Network Rail. Uh, but also we do work for the train operating companies in the UK. So that's the companies that actually run passenger services and freight services. Um, they often want to introduce new trains. And so to fit those trains onto the track, we have to uh, go through a process called uh, clearance analysis or gauging, which is basically fitting trains through it's almost like square peg round hole, kind of particularly with container freight. You've got a square box that you have to get through old arch bridges that were built by Stevenson, you know, 170 years ago. That can be quite fun. So, yeah, so the, the things like this, they're, they're, it keeps it interesting. I, I, I enjoy I enjoy working kind of with these the various different companies and the different demands is quite fun. Yeah, yeah, I got I to gotta imagine. At least that keeps it interesting. So is there any anything specific that stands out when uh... – you know, I ask you about trends you might see when you're consulting or, or you know, specific uh, reoccurring mistakes maybe you end up seeing often. Yeah, the, the, the main challenge for our industry is, is one that really I think is, is, is true across most of the developed world uh, is that we, we have uh, a skills shortage. So we, we, we don't we aren't training enough uh, skilled engineers, technicians, um, uh, kind of people going through either university or apprenticeships. Um, and coupled with that is that we have, you know, budgets are tight. And so we don't have a kind of necessarily have a long-term plan for infrastructure. So that, that means that without, without the skills and, and without the stability of the workflow, it can be very difficult to, to cost effectively upgrade or build new infrastructure. And so this is happening at the moment in the United, in, in the UK, we've got um, electrification projects. So that's where you stick a load of wires above the track so that you can use lighter electric trains. Um, we haven't, 
we've always had very stop start approaches to those sorts of projects and so that makes it very more it makes it more expensive and it, and it means that people are more expensive or there aren't the people who actually have the skills to do it and it's the same in the us at the moment with the uh, the new york uh, subway is having these sorts of problems and also the new um, high-speed line in california it's the same problems you haven't ha- for, for California particularly, the, the high-speed line, um, you haven't built that before in the US. So the skills, you have to train all, you have to create those skills out of almost out of nowhere. Um, and that makes things less cost-effective and a bit more expensive. Um, and so the, the challenge really is, is the political will to have a long-term plan for infrastructure. And I think that's a problem across the world. Yeah, yeah, no, man, that, that that's fascinating, and, and it it kind of leads me perfectly into you know one of the main topics I want to talk about today because I grew up in California, Los Angeles specifically, where uh, you know I think it's it's pretty much culturally and universally known that driving is is horrible there, <laughs> traffic and it's it's so congested. So I genuinely grew up hating driving until I ended up moving away from from the city. So I want to talk about like carpooling and in, in, in just public transit in general and, and some of the changes we're seeing in that industry as we go on. You're in the UK, but I mean, you're, you're facing the same problem with some major cities there. So what, what do you see? Do you see this problem getting worse or, or, or better in regards of, you know, just public transit in general? Yeah. So, I, I mean, well, if, if I stick, so public transport is, it can, you know, it comes down to capacity. It comes down to how many people you can move in a given space and so uh, public transport like trams like railways i mean if i give you a, a good way to compare it is to actually look at how many people those modes move um kind of per hour in a given direction so um if you look at say a, a decent bu- you know a dedicated bus lane or or a tram that that moves between a thousand to five thousand people um, per hour in one direction so just one one bus lane or one tram track one to five thousand people depending on sort of the density of the service um, if you look at metro rail, so that's sort of heavy rail um, stations, you know, the infrastructure is kind of more substantial. That capacity can be up to into the 30,000 passengers per hour per direction. So obviously that's a huge leap in capacity. Um, whereas if you look at, at kind of a busy street and the average commuter car has one kind of people, one person in it, 1.1 people technically um, is the average occupancy in during commuter time. Um, a busy street, you're looking at maybe 800 to up to maybe possibly a thousand people an hour on one street, kind of in one direction. Um, so obviously there's a major advantage to public transport, but you can't build railways everywhere. Um, there's not the budgets, there's not the space necessarily, uh, and even bus lanes that, that require some dedicated infrastructure that that can be complicated. So we can't build those immediately they take time so carpooling is an interesting it's interesting to look at this as a, as a kind of a if not a permanent solution then certainly a stopgap so um carpooling it's called car sharing or ride sharing there are a few different names for it um i mean it, it started back in the second world war in the us actually so during rationing that you that you guys had during the war um the government was encouraging you to carry more people in your cars but actually it goes before that because ever since the car was invented, people gave other people lifts. You know, there was a family car. If you take your family in the car, that's technically carpooling. You know, you're increasing the average number of people in the car, so it's technically carpooling. Um, so that's so between 40 and 50 percent of all car trips actually are a carpool car trip. But again, that's sort of 
really the, the rush hour traffic, peak traffic, um, is commuter traffic. So actually, if you look at um, commuter trips, the number of people carpooling uh, peaked in about the 1970s when there was the, um, there was the energy crisis um, during the mid-70s, um, kind of the oil crisis, the energy crisis. Um, that meant that you had this peak to 20% of car journeys, of commuter car journeys, were, were car shared, which was quite impressive, really. That's now dropped down to about 10%. Um, so, so actually, there's been a drop in numbers over the, the last few decades. Um, so, yeah, so that so gives you a bit of a history about carpooling, a bit of a background. But if you can imagine on a busy, the, the opportunities from carpooling are, if you can imagine on a busy street um, or say like an urban, kind of an urban road, uh, kind of an urban highway in the US where you've got two lanes and, and sort of not that many junctions. Um, if you have um, kind of the average commuter car, so 1.1 people in a car, the capacity of that um, urban motorway is around 4,000 people. If you can imagine um, if you had four people or even two people in the car, that jumps up to eight or even 16,000. So that's a huge jump in capacity for a, for a road if you start getting more people carpooling. Uh, so so there, there are tremendous opportunities with this. So, so then in, in regards to, you know, both of these different regions, the US and the UK, do you feel like they're, they're pretty much on par then in, in regards to this problem? Um, so both the US and the UK invest in sort of um, kind of government initiatives uh, to, to in, in increase carpooling. Um, there's a city near me called Leeds. Um, Leeds has carpool lanes or car sharing lanes, essentially multi, kind of that they're called. The technical name is the high occupancy vehicle lane. Basically, there's a little sign with like some little sort of stick figures in the car saying, if you've got more than one person in the car, you're allowed to drive in this lane. And the US has exactly the same. Um, and there are kind of sponsored initiatives to support more people, um, sort of com some companies support uh, car sharing. Um, so. I know that in the US, it's about 10% at the moment. I don't actually have the figures for the UK, unfortunately, so I can't give you an exact uh, comparison. But both countries sort of um, are investing in supporting carpooling, uh, kind of car sharing as, as an option. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that coupled with um, this desire to have more people car sharing is, this, is the fact that we're all working more. We're working different sorts of hours. The traditional nine to five is breaking down. And so if you have lots of people working different working hours or longer working hours, the opportunity to carpool for commuting reduces a bit. So there are these pressures that, that sort of change, that have changed the landscape a bit. On the other hand, the advent of smartphones and uh, GPS on everyone's phones uh, and kind of app culture, again, makes it a bit easier. So that allows you to quite easily find someone else who might be making the same journey. Uh, so there's this, the, the technolo technology is sort of keeping kind of moving things forwards whilst sort of working patterns pull it back again. So it's kind of been bouncing around the 10% mark for quite a few years now. I mean, it's good to see that at least both regions are acknowledging it as, as a problem, right? But uh, w what do you see looking ahead into the, to the horizon? What do you see as something that could potentially uh, make this whole situation a little smoother, right? In uh, in the little pre-interview survey, you you mentioned something uh, you called the growth of active travel. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, well, this is this for me is, is really important. This ties back into sustainable travel more generally, which which I consider to be um, public transport. So that's rail, buses, um, trams, uh, these sorts of things. Um, is that they don't they don't have the answer because they they can't go to everyone's front door. But if you make public transport good enough that they do most of the journey for most people, then active travel really covers walking, cycling, people who are in wheelchairs, basically moving under your own steam. Now, in the UK, we have the advantage that um, 
wrote that cities are smaller distances are easier to walk and also we have a lot of you know in, in the center of cities actually it's quite hard for the cars to move so there are lots of kind of pedestrian areas um and so the, it's, it's a little easier for us in the us you have huge cities that are spread out over massive distances and so active travel is much harder in us cities because of that and also in quite a few cities um actually the the, the space for you know, pavements and and cycle lanes that they, they don't exist or or they haven't been uh, kind of uh, they've they've been gradually kind of taken over by by the car. So that the challenge is is making the space for for active travel for people to walk and cycle. But cycling is an interesting one. So we've talked about how many people per hour per direction you can get in a bus or in a car share. So you know a, a decent kind of decent capacity road you can get between two and four thousand people moving. Um, for the same width of lane. Um, for cyclists, you can move 14,000 people per hour per direction. So it's not like it's just a nice environmental, oh, it's nice for the green lobby to get people cycling. It's not, you know, not. It, it's an economic necessity for cities to build cycling infrastructure. And you can look at the health in, across Europe, particularly mainland Europe, countries like the Netherlands, uh, Germany, France, where they invest a lot in cycling infrastructure, the health of the um, people in the city improves because the air quality improves. So you have less traffic, better air quality, and people are a bit fitter from cycling as well, which helps. Um, and and you have you have a it's, it's better for society generally if more people are moving under their own steam to get to to get to and from uh, work or or their house. But everything has to fit together. The public transport has to be right. It has to cost the right amount. And coupled with that, and a major challenge in the US, um, and to an extent the UK as well, is how cheap fuel is. That makes a big difference. So fuel in the US is very cheap. And in, in the UK, we've had a, a, a freeze on the um, kind of increase of fuel costs for um, nearly eight years now. This means that it's difficult for public transport to compete when essentially it gets cheaper every year for the for people to drive around. So kind of... There's, there's a kind of a holistic sort of um, view on on how on what this is going to do in the future and whether people are going to move towards active travel um, rather than uh, continue to drive. Because ultimately, the best way to reduce congestion on the roads is to have fewer cars. Yeah, that's interesting. I had never thought about the fuel being like the barrier of entry to driving is so low that, yeah, that, that that's a steep competition for sure. Yeah. So one of the last things I want to talk about, I found this article from from this month where they're, they're talking about the 1835 Highways Act is from the UK. And one of the interesting things, the reason the article came up, it's a Business Insider article. And there's a small startup in San Francisco that I guess is not as small now called Bird and Lime. And they're, they're a scooter startup company, an electric scooter company. And they've been trying to bring it overseas. But I guess that, that uh, Highways Act from 1835, which was originally to uh, prevent uh, horses and carriages, block scooters from being on you know public pavement so th do you think that could be a potential solution because I, I i mean who knows if, if changes will come but i know they're starting to lobby for for some kind of change to try and get their product overseas do you think there's any other you know possibilities in in, in not public transit and it's kind of not if it's an electric scooter i don't know if it counts as active travel but you know that seems like a potential alternative especially like you said in in cities in the uk where you know, it's definitely easier to get around because everything's not so far away from each other. 
yeah, definitely. The opportunities are quite uh, quite exciting for that. And actually, if you look at the rise of electric bicycles, they sort of fall into a similar camp because the number of electric bicycles, as the technology's got better, they've got lighter and cheaper. Actually, people are riding around on electric bicycles a lot more. So actually, I see the scooter, the electric scooter is almost a similar vehicle. Actually, the place to put the electric scooter is on roads that don't have cars on them anymore or onto cycling infrastructure because ideally you don't want to have things moving pretty fast clashing with pedestrians because pedestrians are pretty squishy vulnerable road user so ideally we keep the pedestrians safe on the pavement but the better thing to do is actually to start excluding cars from the center of cities and then you've got lots of nice empty roads to let these scooters go in the uk that's obviously a bit easier if yeah the center of the city is quite small and if you've got space for parking kind of the outside of the city with park and ride or these sorts of schemes but again in the us it's trickier because you the way that your cities are often set up with grid grid pattern you know the square sort of patterns of, of big cities the shape of them doesn't necessarily lend itself to closing lots of roads because it just means that people can't get places um so so the answer has to be building dedicated sort of cycling infrastructure but the electric scooters should be allowed to use the cycling infrastructure because actually they move at pretty similar speeds um i wouldn't want to get hit by a cyclist or an electric scooter if i was on a pavement <laughs> but equally I'd know not to step into the yeah I'd know not to step into a cycle lane so so yeah it's this um the, the answer's got to be there somewhere yeah yeah and and that was my immediate thought too I was like well this this law doesn't sound half bad it sounds like a like a good way to prevent prevent uh protect people you know while they're on the sidewalks but yeah there's no reason why something like a cycling lane couldn't work for this so yeah I, I definitely agree with that well Gareth thank you so much for joining us today I I appreciate your time immensely and and thank you for just being so candid with me. No, absolute pleasure. Always enjoy talking to you guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to articles, podcasts, and video content for your favorite industries. I'm your host, Elmer Guardado. Have a good day.